All right, well, uh, good morning, Transit family. How's everyone doing today? Yeah, we're good, right? Amen. A little cold this morning, but good. Kind of wakes you up. Um, if, you, if I haven't met you yet, if this is your first time here or watching on the live stream, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. And judging by the slide on the screen, we are currently in a sermon series looking at the power of praise. Uh, our tradition historically is every turn of the year for the month of January, we look at the spiritual disciplines. And we thought, hey, we've never looked at the topic of praise, so why don't we dive in? So this is week four. Uh, who here has been enjoying the sermon series? Amen. Yeah, it's been a little stretching, right? And I don't stretch, but I hear stretching is good for you, so uh, that's good for you, right? If it's a little stretching, it's stretching to me in my research. It's been uh, phenomenal to, to kind of do a deep dive into this topic. And a quick distinction before we go any further, I define praise in week one, but let me contrast it with what worship is, okay? Because I think there's some confusion between praise and worship. Praise could be defined as, I think is defined as the act of singing to God songs of adoration and exaltation to God for who he is and all that he's done for us in Christ Jesus. You guys catch that? Praise is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Uh, Hebrews 13, I believe verse 15, a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. So praise is actually something that bubbles out of our hearts, our redeemed hearts to our redeemer, and we proclaim his excellencies. And that's different from worship, where, where worship is not just what comes out of your mouth. Worship is all of life. Worship is word and deed, thought and action, fully yielded to the lordship of Jesus, where God and his grace to us has given us a will, and, and worship is in all things, we lay down that Romans 12 living sacrifice, a living death, and we die to our own wills, and we say, Jesus, your will be done for the glory of your name, for the advancement of your kingdom. So he who loses his life, loses his will, and gives it, surrenders it to the will of God, finds it in Christ Jesus and finds joy everlasting in life, everlasting in Jesus. So the reason I want to clarify that just out of the gate is because I think some of us think that uh, we kind of we marry praise and worship together and we say, oh, well, all of life is worship and I don't like to sing so I can worship and not sing. And the last four weeks as we've opened God's word, we've seen that in the Old Testament alone over 170 times, God's people are either singing or commanded by God to sing. And there's multiple apostolic commands in the New Covenant, the New Testament scriptures, that command us to actually sing with the accompaniment of music, melody in our hearts, thanksgiving to God. Okay, so just want to make that clarification uh, before we go any further. So this is kind of uh, the last talk on the power of praise. And then next week, we're going to look at the pattern of praise and answer all the million-dollar questions we all have about praise. Should we sway back and forth? Should we raise our hands? Should we have instruments? No instruments. You know, hymns or hill songs, all those questions right, we're going to look at uh, next week. So if you have any questions that you want to send me, email me at uh, nick at transit church and say, hey, I'm curious about, you know, whatever. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. This week, I'm, ex I'm, I'm excited, church, about this topic, and I hope you are too. Uh, we're, the, the title of my sermon, you don't know what I'm talking about yet, so how could you be excited about it? Uh, the title of my sermon this morning is this, praise the battle cry of God's people. The battle cry of God's people. So we're going on an amazing journey today in God's word where we see the Lord himself respond in mighty and miraculous ways when his people sing praises to him. Okay, now we have to be, before I go any further, quick disclaimer, we have to be very careful of any transactional view of God meaning that God is a slot machine, and if we just have enough faith and we pray, then God has to act. 
right? So I'm not saying, and no one would say, and the scriptures don't say that, we sing and then God comes and wins all of our battles for us. That we sing and God has to move. God's obligated to move. God must move because we have faith and we're singing. He's God. He's sovereign. We can sing until we're red in the face. And if he doesn't move, uh, then nothing happens. And the point of my talk today is not that God is obligated to move when his people sing praises to him. It's that he loves to move when his people sing praises to him. He, it, it, the, the praises of his people bring a smile to his face. It warms his heart. Uh, it del, it, he delights in, in, in exalt, just Zephaniah 3.17, in exaltation over his people, and he's in their midst, the God who's mighty to save and heal and deliver. Okay, so he doesn't have to. He's not obligated, but I would say that what scriptures teach us is that he loves to, in James 4.8, says this, that um, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So kind of the three points of my talk this morning, and then we'll pray and dive in, is that one, we see that in response to the praises of his people, God by his spirit draws near. And then second point is that when he draws near, he begins to act mightily on their behalf. And then thirdly, we're going to take communion and close with communion. And we're going to see that the beauty of the gospel is that we worship and love and serve a God who came running after us, who drew near to us when there was no song in our mouth, but instead there was cursing his name in our mouth and shouts of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And our Savior, Jesus on the cross, his song back to us was, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. So we're going to conclude with that. So before we dive in, let's prepare our hearts and let's join the psalmist in Psalm 128 who says this prayer. And I'll I'll pray, and as I'm praying, you can pray this before the Lord. And it says, Holy Spirit, come and search me. Search my heart and see if there be any grievous way in me. If there's any any doubt today, if there's any hardness of heart, any unbelief, any unrepentance, would you reveal that Holy Spirit? And then that Psalm, Psalm 128, ends with this, and lead me in the way everlasting. We're not here to give a good sermon. We're here to uh, sit under what God has revealed in his scriptures to us and have our hearts warmed and changed by the presence of God. The Spirit of God is the one who brings about regeneration, new birth, and sanctification. Um, and we're here today to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. So uh, I would do you guys a disservice if I didn't invite you all to prepare your hearts to receive not what I have for you, what God has for us in his word today. So let's go quiet and pray to open up our time. Father, how else could we come to you but with mouths full of joy and praise that into the battle, Jesus, you marched into our battle. Our enemies that we could have never overcome, we were powerless to overcome, the debt of our sin, the penalty of death, the clutches of the demonic on our lives, and Jesus, you came running for us, and you won our victory forever. And because of that, we get to respond, the redeemed of God, singing your praises for the redemption that you purchased by your blood, by your sacrifice. And so I just pray, Jesus, that you be magnified in our midst, that Holy Spirit, uh, I, I invite you and we invite you to come and search our hearts. Come and speak, come and reveal where we're blinded to the beauty of the gospel. Open up our eyes where there's hardness in our hearts to you and our affections for you. Would you soften our hearts today? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and have your way with your word and your people? And I pray that you would magnify Jesus. He would increase in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and that I would decrease up here. And we pray this in your name. Amen. 
All right, well, my first point is this, is that in response to the praises of his people, scripturally speaking, we see that God draws near. Now you might be saying, you might be asking, what do you mean, Nick, God draws near? Aren't we, thanks to what Jesus has done, aren't we as close to God as we could ever get? Uh, back in the, the height of my seminary career, I was very proud and uh, didn't realize, I thought I knew everything, but I didn't realize I didn't really know that much. Um, and it was around this time that there was this song that came out that my wife would play a lot, and it was uh, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place for the atmosphere, right? You guys know that song, right? Uh, and I dogged on that song big time, man. I was like, I told, I told Jen, I was like, Jesus had already ushered, Jesus has gotten us as close to God as we can ever get. What does it even mean? Come Holy Spirit. That song is nonsense. Turn it off, right? I didn't say that harshly. Uh, maybe I said it more harshly. Um, that's where I was at. And I think moving forward, as we talk about this concept of God drawing near, we think that it can uh, cheapen the work of Christ, uh, nullify the work of Christ, that, that we can contribute meritoriously through song or prayer or reading our scriptures that we can actually somehow get more access to God than Jesus has actually given us. And I don't think it minimizes the work of Christ. I think it actually amplifies it. It magnifies it. And there's, a, there's two key distinctions we have to make before we move forward. The two key distinctions is that there's a difference between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. And then secondly, there's a difference between God's omnipresence and what theologians call his manifest presence. Okay? So one, there's a difference between our eternal union in Christ Jesus and our experiential communion with him. Our eternal union with Christ is that unchanging, unshakable gospel reality of our lives, thanks to what Christ has done, that we are justified. Our sins, past, present, and future, are, are, are remembered no more. We're cleansed, we're adopted, never to be unadopted. Romans 8 says that nothing, no height nor depth, angel or demon, nothing and no one in all the earth can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Someone say hallelujah. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, right? I am secure, Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation. Because Nick, in Christ Jesus, has died with Christ on the cross, and uh, he bore my sins, and so I bear them no more. That's eternal. That's unchanging. That is the reality of my life. In his death and in his resurrection, I am united by faith to Jesus forever. And Jesus says that no one can take my kids out of my hands. No one will take them out of my hands. That's unshakable. That's our eternal union. But what can change in varying degrees is our experiential communion, our fellowship with Jesus. The enjoyment of his person, the enjoyment of his presence, the love of, of just abiding in his word and, and in prayer and with the, the assembly of the saints on a Sunday morning or in community group. This is changing our communion with him. It can ebb and flow in varying degrees. And a perfect illustration of this is marriage, right? You, on marriage, you, you make a, a, a vow for eternity. You say, till death do us part. Right? And so that, that's a union that is unshakable, that will not change based on no circumstances until we're broken, busted, like till death do us part and sickness and health, like all that stuff, like you're a hot mess in sweatpants and I am too, and like we're still going to love each other, right? But if you've been married, so that's your eternal union with your spouse. If you've been married for longer than, say, seven minutes, <laughs> come on, somebody, you know, you know that your experiential fellowship and Communion can change with just a simple argument about where you place the forks in the kitchen drawer, right? Like, 
That's what happens. And, and don't say, I'm not just going to share illustrations. Like Revelation 3, the church, Jesus, the letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, right? What does he say to the, the church at Laodicea? He doesn't say, your eternal union with me is secure. Right? He's writing to the church, right? He's writing to uh, the redeemed of God, eternally secure. He's not saying they're not. But he's not saying, hey, because you are forever adopted sons and daughters of God, guess what? You have no warmth in your heart for me. You have no love for me. You've relegated me to the, to the front door outside the house. And so you know what? That doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care that you're lukewarm. I don't care that uh, your heart is, is, is lukewarm. That doesn't bother me at all. Do what you want because, hey, it's all paid for by the blood. That's not what Jesus says. If you've read Revelation 3, you need to go read Revelation 3. In fact, what he says is, he says, you're neither cold nor hot, you're lukewarm, and I spit you out of my mouth. And then, and then what he says, he says something harsh. He says, you think you're rich, and you got everything you need, but in fact, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And you know who loves to hang out with people who are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? Jesus does. So then he knocks, and he says, and then Jesus' response to people who are lukewarm to him is not condemnation. It is, I am standing at the door, beating down the door, because I, why? Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Why? Because I want to come table fellowship with you. I want to have communion with you. I want to sit down at your table and hear about your day. I want to hear about that stress at work. I want to hear about your marriage crisis. I want to have fellowship with you. I died for you for heaven's sake. I'm going to spend eternity with you for heaven's sake. Invite me into your life. Invite me into that space. Don't relegate me through your comfort and your wealth. Don't relegate my presence outside the door. I want that. So there's a, there's a world of difference between our eternal union and our experiential communion. And we have to realize, I harp on this all the time, our redemption in Christ Jesus is for the sake of relationship. It's for the sake of relationship. The overarching story from Genesis to Revelation, I've done a talk on this in the past, is that God, it's God's pursuit of dwelling in the midst of his people. The, the church now is the place where heaven kisses the earth and is he glorified, he, he manifests his glory in our presence. We're the temple of the living God. And this is the way Revelation ends. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and man with God. That's what heaven is, is that we get the presence of God. Okay, so that's the difference between our eternal union and our experiential communion. Now, now, another distinction that we need to make to understand what it means to draw near, and we talked about this last week when we talked about warming our affections, how Jonathan Edwards quotes that, Jonathan Edwards uh, took the position that the, the, the sole purpose of singing to God rather than just stating your appreciation for him was to warm your delight and affections for him. It was to stir your emotions. Jonathan Edwards said that, okay? And the second distinction we have to make is uh, between the omnipresence and the manifest presence of God. God's omnipresence means this, is that God is everywhere at all times, that there is nowhere that escapes God's sight. The psalmist says, even if I go down to the lowest of lows and the highest of heights, I cannot escape your sight. God's manifest presence is different than his omnipresence. It's when God, his manifest presence is when he tangibly and visibly reveals and displays his presence, his glory, and his power. Um, if I were to say it this way, God's omnipresence is God is everywhere. His manifest presence is God is there. Like God, God just done showing up on the scene. Okay? 1 Corinthians 14, Paul gives us an illustration of this. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, Paul says this. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And then he gives an illustration as to why you should do that. And he says a non-believer will come into your midst. And if you're open to the Holy Spirit moving in your midst, moving in your congregation through the spiritual gifts, which God the Father gifted to his church, by the way. It was his idea. Um, the non-believer comes, and all of a sudden, he says, through the, by the Spirit, 
Someone gets a download on this guy's secret sin, confronts him about it. He hits the floor uh, and repents and gives his life to Jesus. And what's the refrain that Paul gives? The refrain that Paul gives that this guy says in 1 Corinthians 14 is, God is really among you. God has manifested his presence by the gifts of the Spirit through the prophetic function. God is, God is here at work because there's no way supernaturally you could have known what I, about me what you, know, what you knew because nobody knows about this sin. Okay? Other illustrations in Scripture of the manifest presence of God would be uh, Exodus, right? God is omnipresent, but then God dwelt in the midst of his people Israel. He redeemed them for, out of bondage in Egypt for the sake of relationship. And then what did he do? He commanded them to build a tabernacle, and his glory fills the tabernacle, and he manifests his presence fire by night, cloud by day. Okay? And then what do we see in Acts 2? The redeemed of God, the, the temple where God's glory will dwell. Now, you and I, the living stones, 1 Peter 2, the place where the Spirit of God will dwell. What do we see in Acts 2? Jesus ascends his ascension. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He pours out the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, upon the church. God's glory fills his temple, now the church. And what happens? Fire over their heads, right? Acts 2, go read Acts 2. Fire over their heads, they're all speaking in tongues. Boom. God manifested his presence there. And we see that all throughout the book of Acts, which we talked about last year. Okay? So that's the difference between manifest and omnipresence. And uh, the way I like to illustrate, and forgive me if you've heard this, but I think it's just a good way to illustrate this, is uh, who here enjoys building forts? Anyone here a good fort builder, like in your house? Yeah, my kids, I see a lot of kids back there raising their hands. Yeah, yeah. You, all about, you can build a fort back there if you want some of the chairs, grab some blankets. Anyways, um, my kids, uh, back when we were, uh, we just moved uh, less than a month ago, but we used to live in a kind of a two-story townhouse, and uh, me, I was kind of omnipresent in that townhouse, meaning I could be uh, upstairs in the master uh, bedroom, and my kids could be downstairs, and I could parent my kids from my, from my bedroom, right? Like before my kid's about to swing and slap someone back in the head, I said, don't you do that? You know, like, how did they see? Because I'm omnipresent in that house, you know? <laughs> Nothing escapes my sight. Y'all know, like parents, you got like eyes, you got like a sixth sense. You can see when like something's about to go down, okay? So I'm omnipresent in my house. And from my kid's perspective, they know daddy's home, right? But he's distant, right? He feels distant. I know he's there. I know he sees, but he's distant. His voice is a little faint. I don't hear his voice. But then my kids are really good at building a fort, right? And the fort would take over the whole living room and blankets and chairs and all that stuff. And that would be the, the sacred dwelling place, a tabernacle, if you will, where, they would, where, 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 where the daddy would manifest his presence and hang out with his kids. And the, the refrain that would come to father who was upstairs would, Daddy, we've built the fort. Now come and manifest your presence. Come Holy Spirit, Right? You're welcome in this place. Come manifest your presence. We know you see, we know you hear our prayers, and we're inviting you to come. We want to hang out with you. We want to encounter you. And when I manifest my presence with my little toddlers in that fort, they begin to have a totally different uh, experience with my glory than they did before. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm 5'8", 160, soaking wet. But when I, when I manifest my presence, that little fort, my little toddlers, they feel the weight of my glory. All of a sudden, Daddy is, whoa. You know what the word for glory in the Hebrew scriptures is? It's kavod, which is weightiness. And so when God shows up, the, 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 the weight that comes over, you can sometimes sense it in certain environments. Weight just, boom, they feel like, they hear the clarity of my voice like they've never heard it before. The booming clarity of my voice. The warmth emanating off of my being actually warms them. When I, when I draw near, when I draw near. I think that's a perfect illustration for God's omnipresence versus his manifest presence when he draws near. And we see this beautiful reality in Scripture, Second Chronicles 5, 11 through 14. 
context of this is Solomon built the temple and he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And this is what happens next. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical uh, singers, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. So just a heads up, this is all God's idea. Instruments, singers, cymbals, singing in unison. Like that, this is God's idea. Okay? And when, guys, are you still on the screen? And say, and when. And when the song was raised with trumpets, cymbals, and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, singing this, remember this refrain, remember this line. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, it repeats, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God went from being the omnipresent to manifesting his presence. You guys see that difference in 2 Chronicles 5? Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think it's impossible to miss the causation here linked to the praises of God's people and him drawing near, right? It says explicitly in verse 13, when the song was raised, God showed up, he drew near, he manifested his presence in full glory. So it says that the priest could not stand up, not that they bowed in reverence. When divine omnipotence enters a room, and encounters human frailty, guess which one gives? Right? Guess which one gives? When omnipotence manifests, divine omnipotence means human frailty, there's one that buckles. Okay, one that buckles, and it's you and I. So they, they, they're, they're, <laughs> these jokers, not jokers, but they're slain in the spirit, God shows up, boom, they're gone. And um, the question to ask is this, couldn't have God just shown up in the temple? Right? He's God. He's sovereign. Of course he could. Of course he could have. He's God. He doesn't need songs. He doesn't need entrance music. Right? He's God. But what God doesn't say to Solomon and to all the priests, he doesn't say, punt to my sovereignty and hook up a bunch of Xboxes in the temple and just wait for me to move. That's not what God says. He doesn't say, punt to my sovereignty, do nothing and expect me to move. That's not what he says. That's not what the scriptures say. He says, sing praises to me. Sing songs to me and see what it does to my heart. See what happens. See what, see what I begin to do. And the way to understand this, I think, is Psalm 22.3, which says this, Yet you are holy, and you are enthroned on the praises of your people. Another translation would say that God inhabits the praises of his people. And so Dr. Sam Storms, uh, by the way, I highly encourage you, uh, this is a confession. Uh, probably 99.9% .9 of everything I've shared in the sermon series, I've stolen from his podcast. Uh, so Dr. Sam Storms has a great podcast called Word and Spirit, and he has about an 8 to 10 episode series on the power of praise. So go listen to that, uh, and you'll get a lot of the same info that you have here. But in his podcast, he said, he said this, and he almost, he almost was hesitant to say, he's like, I know this sounds uh, heretical or not true, but he says, he says this, it seems as if, um, 
the praises of God's people is the place where he dwells. It's where he calls home. It's where he calls home. That praise is God's address. It's where he lives. And he's speaking in an illustrative way. We all know that God indwells us, his church, uh, by the Spirit. But the principle he's getting at is that when we sing praises unto our Lord, God kind of moves closer. He inhabits that praise, if you will. And he draws near by his Spirit and begins to move and act on our behalf. Dr. Wayne Grudem, uh, a great scholar, well-respected, says this about our worship. And in this context, he's talking about not worship in general, but worship in song. And when we worship, God meets with us and directly ministers to us. And I shared this last week, but it's worth repeating. And strengthening our faith, intensifying our awareness of his presence. Make us more aware of your presence. And granting refreshment to our spirits, right? So we see that, yes, God is omnipresent. But as we begin to sing songs of adoration and affection and exaltation to Jesus, by the Spirit, he draws near and he begins to, to minister to us. He begins to instill faith and hope where there is doubt and despair. And, um, and let me just say this, that there, there's still power when God manifests his glory by the Spirit. He's still doing that. I think sometimes that we can read these stories of old and, and say that God is changing, that we actually worship and serve a God who doesn't do this anymore. Um, but as some of you know my story, about two years ago, I just simply entered a place where people were uh, spending copious amounts of time worshiping the Lord, and, uh, and, and I've never been in an environment to this day where it's hard to describe, but I felt like the Lord, I, it wouldn't have surprised me if I saw fire and a cloud fill that room because of how thick I felt like the glory of God was. And uh, you hear me this for about f- four days, off and on for a couple hours, I hit the floor, church, as the presence of God came over me in power, no one touched me. No one waved the blazer in my face. I could not stand. And when I rose up from that floor, I arose a new man. Forever changed my life and my destiny and my family's life. Forever changed. I had addictions that I could not overcome and I could not break off. Gone. Forever. I, I, was, I was changed. I arose a new man from that encounter where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. There is liberty. There is liberty. And what God has done in his scriptures, he's still doing, and I'm living testimony to that. We don't go chase after wild experiences. We chase after the Lord and see what he does. And for me, I'm living proof that uh, he's still in the business of bringing people to the floor and rising them up from the ashes, a brand new man. Um, And since that experience, revival broke out in my family, and my family would say, oh, Nick, you led the charge on this. This is amazing. We're all like following Jesus now, and this is amazing. And not that they weren't following Jesus, but just a renewal that broke out in my family. And I said, I didn't do a thing. I crossed a threshold to essentially a room that was filled with the presence of God. And I don't even, I don't even, I can't even put to words what happened to me. But all I, but what I do know is that there's a fire in my belly to tell people that my God is the God I serve and worship. He's alive. And he's on the move, and he's still changing stories and, and rewriting history in, in, our, in our stories. And he's still uh, doing a lot of things that we thought, we thought he, was, he was silent on. And, and just to encourage you in this is if you think that, you know, okay, well, Nick, we, we love you, we trust you, and uh, we agree that, that was supernatural, but we believe that that was demonic. Uh, it was a demonic encounter. Um, I just want to gently encourage you in this, that you are actually in the camp where you would attribute more supernatural power to change someone's life to the devil than to the living God. And if you want to be in that camp, more power to you, okay? And then secondly, if it was demonic, he done messed up. 
he don't mess up. Because I've never been more in love with Jesus these last two years than what happened to me October 2019. Hours in prayer, hour in praise and worship, uh, sharing my faith more powerfully and boldly as the Holy Spirit came upon me. Uh, radical life transformation, seeing people come to know Jesus. And, uh, so anyways, there's power. There's power when he draws near. And when it says that, uh, when we say that he comes and he draws near and he ministers to us, it doesn't mean he's going to flatten all of us but it does mean that his Holy Spirit's gonna come and begin to uh, remove doubt and warm our affections and open up our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and the reality of the gospel um, and uh, the reality of his presence that uh, the gospel is that we get the presence of God, Jesus toward the veil. Okay, so moving on. Um, If you thought that was stretching, wait till we talk about the next topic. Um, When God's people sing praises to them, he loves to draw near. And what we see in scripture is that when he draws near, he acts powerfully on their behalf. He acts powerfully on their behalf. Here are some things that we see, three, three kind of accounts we see in Scripture. I had way more than this, but I'm already preaching long. Uh, I had to cut them all out. But the first thing we see is that the demonic, which is real, which Jesus came to destroy, go read the Scriptures, uh, flees. The demonic flees at the sound of the praises of God's people. 1 Samuel 16, okay? 1 Samuel 16, we see that in 1 Samuel 15, that King Saul deliberately disobeyed, deliberately, willfully disobeyed God. And he just done got demonized because of that willful unrepentance, okay? A harmful spirit, it says, from the Lord came upon Saul. And I'll just share the whole story. I'm just going to read one verse, but the context is this, is that Saul's messengers go to Saul, who's been afflicted with this demon, this harmful spirit, and they say, the antidote that they give is, hey, we need to find a musician to sing some worship music, and they find David. And this is what happens when David in Saul's presence sings praises to God. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from Saul. Now the elephant in the room is, how could, a harmful, how could God send a, a demon to Saul, right? And if you study this, you know that theologians are still kind of scratching their head. Uh, but the way I come to a cognitive rest with this is one is that God is sovereign, right? Uh, and the demonic, thankfully, by his grace, is on a leash. If there was not a leash in some mysterious way that God had on the demonic, all of us right now would be de- like completely devoured. The world would look a whole lot worse than it does. Secondly, I believe that we, uh, uh, we can open doors to demonic influence in our lives. And so we see in, in 1 Samuel 15 is that Saul deliberately disobeyed God, and he opened a door. And maybe, just maybe, um, this isn't in your scriptures, but I'm saying this is how I come to arrest to it, is that maybe uh, Saul opens that door, which was once not open. He was once protected from demonic inhabitation and influence in his life. And the demonic looks at the Lord and says, that door is open. I see it's open. Can I go? And the Lord, with, uh, with, with maybe hesitation in his heart, says, not my will for Saul be done, but Saul's will be done because Saul chose to open that door and he's refused to repent. So yes, in a way, that God gave him the green light to, to go through the open door that Saul opened. So that's one way that I come to arrest to that. If you want to study that, good luck. I can, good luck. I can point you to some resources. But we even see that principle in Ephesians 4, right? Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Otherwise, you'll give a, a, a stronghold, tapas, geographical region to the enemy to have influence in your life to directly harass you, okay? That you can do from your unrepentant sin in bitterness and anger towards someone. It's Ephesians 4. All right, so... Um, All that to say, that's another sermon for another time. All that to say, here's what's crazy. When David played his acoustic guitar, okay, and he wasn't playing 
Ants Marching by Dave Matthews, okay? He wasn't playing Stairway to Heaven, right? We know David. He was a man after the Lord's heart. The Spirit of the Lord in 1 Samuel 16, 13 rushed upon David. Uh, he was a, the Lord was with David. And as he's saying, the Spirit of God would draw near and he would worship Jesus and demons would flee. And that was the antidote to Saul's demonization. I think we learn a principle here that the praises of God's people irritate and harass and, and intimidate the demonic to the point that they would run for their lives. They'd run for their lives. Why? Why? Two reasons, I think. One, the demonic hates God. They hate it when God's people see him rightly and respond rightly to his goodness and his kindness in Christ Jesus. And so when we begin to sing, the demonic is just another reminder of their defeat that they'd done lost you, they lost your song, they lost your heart, and Jesus has your heart. So it's just a reminder that, dang, we've lost them, and it's like nails on a chalkboard to them because it's a reminder that, that that praise that's going to Jesus is not going to them, okay? It's like you listening to polka music, right? It just, it just, ah, oh, it just rubs you the wrong way. Anyway, sorry if you like polka music. All right, um, but I've been, uh, a little over a year ago, I was in a deliverance session uh, where someone was manifesting a demon, and the person who is leading that deliverance ministry session uh, looked at the people who are assisting that deliverance ministry and uh, said, said this, said, I want all of us to stop right now and I want us to sing praises to Jesus. I want us to sing praises to Jesus. At that moment, uh, this person's demon screamed at the top of its lungs, threw its, uh, the dude's hands over his ears and said verbatim in a crazy, loud, guttural voice, I hate your songs just belted out, like went berserko. And in that moment, I'm going, I think I need to play some more worship music in my house. Because that, because what that said, out of the horse's mouth, that the devil hates the songs of God's people. And John Piper, Dr. John Piper, yes, the Dr. John Piper of Desiring God Ministries. I was listening to a sermon of his recently where he shares early on in his ministry, he was casting a demon out of some lady, and uh, they were kind of struggling. It was kind of at an impasse, and so it was either Dr. John Piper or one of the other people there that were like, that said, hey, let's just start praising God. And it, what John Piper says is, as they began to sing songs to Jesus, this demon went bananas, went berserk, went nuts, and it actually, it actually helped them get this thing, thrust this thing by the power and the authority of Christ and the power of the Spirit out of this lady, okay? Um, and so we see this, we see this, um, so that's one, they hate God, and it just drives them nuts. It's like kryptonite to them, the praise of God's people. Uh, two, what we know is that if praise attracts the presence of God, uh, well, God is the enemy to the demonic, and so God's presence is going to send them running for the fences. Uh, we bought a, a kind of an older, newer house, but there may or may not be some rodents in our house, and they're escaping my my sticky traps, my bucket traps, my electrical traps. Um, and uh, for the sake of illustration, if I were to get fed up and say, I'm allergic to cats, so I wouldn't do this, but if I were to call the animal shelter, and I know the, the rodents are in the walls, and I get really close to the walls, and I say, all right, person at the animal shelter, give me the meanest, baddest, fattest, like, cat you put in solitary confinement because he's harassing all the other animals, like, rat-killing beast, as soon as you can into this house. I don't care if it's five grand, bring that thing here. The rat's like, all right, boys, hey, we got to roll. The, the, the cat's coming, you know? The rat's coming. Garfield, big old, big old fat cat's coming. 
before the cat even shows up, those jokers are gone, right? And so in our song, as we begin to sing to the living king who's present with us by his spear, and he begins to, in a mysterious way, manifest more of his presence, the more we sing to him, guess who's going to tremble and fear? In the presence of God. And we see this in Mark 1.24. Go read the Gospel of Mark. It all talks about is Jesus' deliverance ministry after, the, after his baptism in the Spirit. Go read Mark 1. And in Mark 1, Jesus is simply doing this. He's preaching at a synagogue. And somebody's demons are trembling in the synagogue. Demons just going, oh my gosh, that's the, that's the Christ of glory. Oh my gosh, does he know we're here? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And you get this impression that all of a sudden, the demonic freaks out. They're terrified of Jesus. And then they scream out. And then, and then they say in Mark 1, 24, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And 1 John 3, 8 says, absolutely. The, word, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. They know who Jesus is. And they're terrified of him. Terrified of his presence. When you begin to enter into deliverance ministry, which isn't deliverance ministry, it's the, Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, by the way, that he's entrusted to his church to continue because people still need hope. People still need freedom from demonic affliction in their lives. And we're the only people, the church, the, uh, the, those in Christ Jesus are the only people on the planet who have the power and the authority to help people get set free from demonic oppression, which is real and still happens today. And as you begin to do that, and you see exactly what happens in Mark 1:24, demons beg for mercy and are trembling in the presence of God. You want to know how much that instills your faith in where Christ, your Christ of glory is seated above all rulers powers authorities powers and dominion it's amazing and they did it then so anyways the reason i share all that is church we have to be reminded that i'll move on to my last point we have to be reminded that we are in a battle we are in a battle there is no neutral ground scripture makes crystal clear if you are in uh, christ you're also in the crosshairs of the demonic first peter 5 8 the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour be sober-minded be alert and what the only thing i want to say there's a lot of ways that we we fight spiritually uh, in, in warfare against the demonic is uh one of the one of the primary ways what i want to encourage us in is is praising your arsenal is praising your arsenal. Well, let me let me say it this way if say in theory the demonic were to sashay into your household would they be nice and cozy with what you're listening to and what you're watching? Like, oh, what you watching? Oh, this is great. Yeah, I helped write this, by the way. Here, get some popcorn. This is great, right? Oh, you, you, you like this song? I love this song too. That's great. I helped write it, right? Or are they going berserko in your house with what you're living to, listening to? Like, like, if that were to happen, I'm just, I'm just they, hate the, they hate the songs of, our God's, of, of God's people. So in your house, What's, go, what's playing? What, 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 what are you listening to? What are you watching? And would the demonic, if they were to just kind of stumble into your residence, theoretically speaking, would they be cozy or would they be going crazy? They'd be going crazy. And lastly, uh, we see a couple more instances of how God moves on behalf of the praise of his people. We see that battles are won and chains are loose when God's people praise him. Second Chronicles 20, 21 through 22. There's a large enemy force coalition that gathers around King Jehoshaphat and Judah. Judah. And uh, uh, King Jehoshaphat is afraid. He's terrified. And he calls upon all of Israel to seek the Lord. And this is how they choose to fight their battle. Second Chronicles 21, 22. And when King Jehoshaphat had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went in front of before the army. And they sang this, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. We see that again. We saw that in Second Chronicles 5. And when... And when they began to sing and praise, what happened? The Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. Now, real quick, just to paint the picture, could you imagine being that praise and worship team? 
King Jehoshaphat says, hey, you guys up here, no military training, no armor. You just got your, your liar, and you're going to go Michael W. Smith on the Moabites. <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. I'm going to die. This will be the last song I sing, right? His, his love endures forever. That's, what, that's how they won the battle. That's crazy. They sang to God. They sang praises to him. What would, lead you to, what would lead you to lay down your weapons and pick up your lyre and your harp in, in a battle? You know what would do that? It's powerlessness. When you understand that, that if I swing, we lose. So I got to stop swinging, and I got I to start singing to the one who can fight on my behalf. Second Chronicles 20, 12. This is King Jehoshaphat. He says he's talking to God. He says, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. We talked about last week about how praise fixes our gaze upon where Christ is seated. And King Jehoshaphat is leading his people to God and God's power, not his own. He's saying, I'm powerless to overcome this, but our eyes are on you. We are not without a king. We are not without hope. And so we are going to sing. And this is what praise is. The battle, the victory belongs to the Lord. I am powerless to fight on my behalf. So I'm going to fix my gaze on the one who can fight on my behalf and win my battle in song. Acts 16, 25 through 26. Uh, the context of this passage is Saul, um, uh, Paul, and Silas are in the region of Philippi. They just, ca- go read Acts 16, they just cast a demon out of a slave girl who was practicing divination. And the owners of that slave girl were really angry because she just lost her powers of fortune telling when that spirit left. So they get Paul and Silas beaten with rods violently and thrown in prison. And you want to know how Paul and Silas respond? I'll tell you, Acts 16, 25 to 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners, were, they, were, they, they weren't whispering. They were singing loud enough so the other prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Amen. Right? Like, Game over for Paul and Silas. Power, you want to be powerless over that? You're in chains and there's iron bars in front of you. But you know what they can't take? Although they couldn't break the chains, they could sing to the one who could. They knew the one who could, and so they sang to him, and then God moved. God moved. God moved. And so my application before we conclude, band, you can come up, um, is where now in your life do you feel like God is calling you to stop swinging and to start singing? Start swinging often will double down on our own willpower to fix our broken marriage, to fix circumstances that are outside our control. We'll double down on our own fleshly willpower to overcome besetting sins, addictions, and things we can't shake and and break off of us. And maybe, just maybe, what the Lord is encouraging some of us in certain situations in our lives, saying, where am I calling you to be still and to know that the battle belongs to me? So start singing to me and raising a hallelujah in the middle of your storm. Because because some of us might be in situations where we feel like we're chained up. And there's prison doors all around us. Um, And what would it look like in your life not to quit your job and buy a harp and just sing 24-7? That's not what I'm saying. But to humbly acknowledge our weakness 
to overcome circumstances, our weakness to overcome our own sins, our own battles against uh, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, but realize that we know the one who has the power to overcome. And we have access to him in prayer. We have access to him in his word. We have access to him in song. And so where in your life is the Lord calling you to stop swinging and to start swinging? So we'll conclude with communion. If you have your communion elements, feel free to take those out now. If you need more, there's some in the hallway. And I know in this talk, we talk about how on uh, post-regeneration and new birth for the believer, that God can draw more closer by manifesting his spirit in our midst. But the beauty of the gospel, we can be, we can be uh, uh, in dangerous waters there if we think that we add anything to our salvation, that through our good works, we earn God's favor. And the beauty of what this meal communion commemorates is that when there was no song in our mouth, and when our hearts were not drawing near to God, but running full sprint away from him and mouth shouting, crucify him, that God came running to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ who gave his life on a cross to die for a sinner like you and a sinner like me to pay the penalty of our sins so that they could be washed away and covered by his sacrifice forever and so that we could be redeemed as sons and daughters and filled with the spirit of God and know that our relationship now with our father, the spirit inside of us cries out, Abba, Father, we've been given the ministry on the hope of reconciliation. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared one last Passover meal with his disciples. And traditionally, Passover meals concluded with the singing of what is known as the great Hallel, which are Psalms 113 to 118. Matthew 26, 30 says this. Matthew 26, 30 says this. This is, this is the last song Jesus sings before he's betrayed and he marches to the cross. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What a beautiful picture. After the upper room discourse, Jesus gathers everyone. They stand and they sing praises to God. And you wanna know how Psalm, how the great Hallel ends? You wanna know the last song, the last refrain, the last verse Jesus sung before he went to the cross for you? It was Psalm 118, 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Where have we seen that refrain? It was what Jehoshaphat's praise and worship team sung in front of the army, calling on God to fight their battle for them, acknowledging his goodness, his love that would endure for all of eternity. And it was this song, this refrain that was in Jesus's mind and his ear with every crack of the whip against his back. Our God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Every nail driven into his hands, God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. The crown of thorns thrust into his skull. Our God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Let's not play around this morning. That's what this meal commemorates. For our God is good and his love endures forever. And this meal commemorates and honors our king who left his throne to die on your behalf when there was no song in your mouth. And just like me, when we were dancing with the devil and singing to the devil, Jesus came running for us. And so let's give him praise. And the reason we can give him praise in the middle of our battle is because what this meal commemorates is that he's won our war. Forever, the war's been won. Sin has no hold on your life. The devil done lost you forever. Because this meal commemorates what Christ has done. You're ransomed, you're rescued, eternally secure in the Father's hand because of what Jesus has done. 
And that's why we can sing in the midst of our battle is because Jesus won the war. He won the war forever. Forever. And so with that said, let's honor him with how we praise his name by sharing this meal and honoring our king with mouths full of praise that this is our victory won. We are not defeated. We are not condemned. We are redeemed. And we are victorious in him. Why? Because the battle is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. And he fought on our behalf and he won on our behalf. This is the body of the living Christ, the Christ of glory, broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for your sins and mine. Thank you, God. All right, well, let's sing, uh, let's sing in our victory. Let's sing in our Savior. I don't know where some of you are at. It's been a rough week, I'm sure. Maybe a rough couple months for a lot of you this season. Uh, but in your battle, we can still send forth a praise because we can gather together this morning and declare that our king is victorious. And the, the war has been won even though the battle still rages. So let's rise and give praises to our king.